Hello everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, Himal's fortnightly podcast on all things South Asia, where we bring you a roundup of the big stories in the region and speak to an expert for a deep dive into a major issue affecting South Asia. We are your hosts, Raisaim Ratika, and in this episode, we'll be speaking to Sana Alimia on Pakistan's deportation order impacting Afghan refugees. But first, a roundup of the big stories in the region. This news roundup was recorded on 17th November and covers the news from 3rd November to 17th November. In Myanmar, armed groups battling the military junta continue to make advances, including in the northwest along the border with India. These advances form part of coordinated attack dubbed Operation 1027, with several of the armed groups coming together in an alliance. Armed groups took control of two military outposts in Chin state, while 1,400 refugees caught amidst the fighting fled across the border into neighboring Mizoram. Around 40 army personnel also crossed the border and were handed over to the junta by the Assam rifles. There were also significant advances in Rakhine, with the junta and Myanmar's police abandoning around 40 positions, the Irrawaddy reported on the 13th of November. Now, the Arakan army breached an informal ceasefire, which was agreed last November in launching these attacks. Curfew was imposed in the Rakhine's uh, capital, Sitwe, on the 14th of November, residents said. Meanwhile, in Shan state, the Kachin Independence Army seized a military camp in Kutkai Township. Around 6,200 people have been displaced, sheltering either in religious compounds or temporary camps and 500 people from Qin Shui Hao have crossed the border into China for safety. The junta has mostly countered the operations with air and artillery strikes, resulting in increasing civilian deaths. Between the 10th and 16th of November, at least 17 civilians were killed in artillery strikes in Rakhine, while more than 20 people were reported killed in Shan State between the 27th of October and the 6th of November. On the 13th of November, President Ranil Vikramasinghe presented Sri Lanka's budget for 2024 as the country continues to grapple with an economic crisis. The government has set a fiscal deficit target of 2.85 trillion Sri Lankan rupees for the coming year. And questions have been raised about the feasibility of the projected tax revenue, which has been set at 4.1 trillion rupees. And analysts have called the targets particularly ambitious. A salary increase has also been announced for the public sector workers after protests in early November. This highlights the balancing act that Vikramasinghe is attempting in order to meet targets set by the IMF and appeal to the voters ahead of planned presidential and parliamentary elections in 2024. On the 27th of September, the International Monetary Fund said that they would not release a second tranche of 330 million US dollars until they had reached a staff level agreement with Sri Lanka, citing potential shortfalls in revenue generation. Sri Lanka must also negotiate with its creditors to restructure its debt in a complex process which does lack transparency. As negotiations continue, Sri Lankans still feel the impact of the crisis. An October 2023 multidimensional vulnerability index revealed that around 33% of the population remains vulnerable to debt. Sri Lanka's Supreme Court recently held that members of the former cabinet, including former President Gotabaya Rajapaksha, had violated the fundamental rights of the citizens due to the economic mismanagement. 
On the 12th of November, a section of a tunnel on the Brahmakal Yamunotri National Highway in Uttarkashi collapsed, trapping 40 workers inside. Rescue efforts are still underway, with food and oxygen being sent to the workers through a pipeline. However, rescue workers' efforts have been hampered by breaking machinery and landslides. Workers from the site say they had apprehensions about the structure and informed their supervisors, but the collapse happened before any action could be taken. Researchers have begun asking if proper geological and geotechnical surveys were carried out before embarking on the highway project. The tunnel is not far from a region sensitive to earthquakes, and discussions on better disaster governance have been revived thanks to the accident. On the 13th of November, Nepal's cabinet announced that they were going to ban the social media platform TikTok, claiming that it was spreading social discord. Announcement of the ban comes days after Nepal's government asked social media companies to register and open offices in Nepal. Nepali Times reported that the ban could be due to concerns around misuse by pro-monarchy political pressure groups. Nepal now joins countries like India and Afghanistan who have also implemented bans, while the United States, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Canada and Australia have banned TikTok on government devices citing national security concerns since TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is based in Beijing. In Bangladesh, four garment factory workers were killed by police after weeks of protests for higher wages. On the 7th of November, a government-appointed panel agreed to raise the minimum wage for these workers to 12,500 takas. This offer was rejected by the workers, who say that they want a minimum wage of at least 23,000 takas to keep up with inflation. At least 130 factories were forced to close due to worker walkouts. However, Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina said that workers should return to their posts and said that the government was unable to raise wages any further. She also connected the garment factory worker protests to those led by the Bangladesh Nationalist Party and its activists, a charge that workers deny. So far, 11,000 workers have been charged by police. The Bangladesh Garment Manufacturers and Exporters Association said that global fashion brands are contributing to the problem by refusing to pay ethical prices for Bangladesh-made clothes. The garment industry in Bangladesh accounts for 85% of the country's exports, bringing in an estimated 47 billion US dollars in the last fiscal year. On the 3rd of November, more than 150 people were killed after an earthquake struck Jajarkot and West Rakam, which is 500 kilometers west of Kathmandu. Around 375 people were injured and the tremors were felt as far as neighbouring Delhi. Three more tremors were reported within an hour of the first quake. UNICEF reported that over half of those killed were children. On 3rd of October, a 6.3 magnitude earthquake was recorded in Bajang district, resulting in injuries. According to the Kathmandu Post, more than 200 affected families are still displaced and living in tents. Subrata Roy, the founder of the multi-billion dollar conglomerate Sahara Group, died on the 14th of November at the age of 75. Once known as an influential businessman, Roy's reputation came under scrutiny from the Securities and Exchange Board of India. It was later found that Sahara companies raised 200 billion Indian rupees in bonds that were later ruled as illegal. 
millions of Sahara Group's investors were from rural India and had minimal access to formal banking services. Roy also came under scrutiny in 2016 when the caravan reported that he appeared to have paid a bribe of 550 million Indian rupees to Narendra Modi when he was chief minister of Gujarat. On the 10th of November, the International Cricket Council suspended Sri Lanka cricket because of government interference, saying that Sri Lanka was quote-unquote in serious breach of its obligations as a member. The decision came after a week when Sports Minister Roshan Ranasinghe accused Sri Lanka cricket of being corrupt in parliament. On the 13th of November, Ranasinghe sacked the Sri Lanka cricket board after its poor performance at the ongoing Cricket World Cup. Ranasinghe then appointed an interim committee headed by the former critic cricketer Arjuna Ranatunga in its place, but the decision was stayed by the courts. Over 170,000 Afghan refugees have returned to Afghanistan between 17th of September and the 6th of November, Dawn reported. The Afghan media Tola News puts the number at nearly 300,000 people. These repatriations come after Pakistan's government issued an order asking all foreigners living without legal status in the country to leave by the 1st of November or face deportation. Nearly 1,000 Afghan refugees are currently detained in Pakistan, with the head of the Afghan Refugee Council, Mir Ahmad Raufi, saying that both registered and unregistered refugees were being detained. On the 10th of November, Pakistan also announced that it had decided to extend the legal resident status of over 1 million Afghan refugees until the end of the year, ending four months of anxiety for registered Afghan refugees. And that's it for the News Roundup. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting Himal by becoming a member. We are a fully independent, non-profit media organization and we rely on listeners like you to sustain and grow our work. You can see our membership plans at www.himalbank.com membership. And we've included a link to our membership page in the episode notes below. And now it's time for our deep dive, where we bring in experts, reporters, authors, and field specialists to talk about the important and unseen layers of a big story. Today we have with us Sana Alimia, a political scientist with a focus on migration, surveillance, and urbanity. Sana is an assistant professor at the Aga Khan University and is the author of Refugee Cities, the history of Afghan migration to urban Pakistan since the 1970s. Pakistan has begun to detain undocumented migrants, nearly all of whom are refugees from Afghanistan. The government has set a November 1st deadline for them to leave or be expelled. Well, the Pakistan government says it's following its own rules, but human rights groups like Amnesty International have criticized the policy, which they say leaves some vulnerable groups in grave danger. But for many Afghans, there's no going back. Pakistani authorities began demolishing houses in the hours before the November 1st deadline. Houses that many Afghans lived in for decades. Now they face a life under the Taliban, the same group that caused many to flee Afghanistan in the first place. What is the history of Afghan migration to Pakistan and how has their presence shaped the city? Here to talk to us about this is Sana. Sana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Coming to the refugees from Afghanistan, what have you been hearing 
you know, about the current situation of the refugees leaving Pakistan. And I'm curious if any of the people that you spoke to for your book have been impacted by the deadline that's been given. Yeah, so I think there's been quite excellent reporting um, and documentation that's been taking place by activists, human rights organizations, as well as journalists working on the ground who have been trying to engage with what's happening to their communities too, because of course, as I contend in my work, Afghans in Pakistan are a part of Pakistan and have been in the country for, in most cases, for many, many years, and they have a shared sense of community and belonging. So many of the folks who are kind of engaged in these processes of trying to document what is happening and trying to lobby for it to stop, and the reports that are coming in are quite harrowing. Um, I've also have, of course, folks and contacts and people who I've worked with over the years who are telling me many things of how worried and how scared they are or how they have taken cover within the context and of the towns and cities in which they're living and are basically trying just to not leave their homes for fear of being subject to forms of harassment from the law enforcement agencies. So that's a similar story that we've been seeing taking place over the past few weeks. But I also have to say um, has been really taking place a lot throughout this year in particular too. And what I'd like to say is that the government supposedly was targeting, um, it said, undocumented migrants. But the reality is that the, is that the law enforcement agencies have not distinguished between the various legal definitions of who's eligible to stay within the country or not. And that's had massive implications for the general Afghan society within the country, as well as for Pashtuns, Pakistani citizens who are Pashtun origin too, because there've been many cases of reports that are telling us that Pakistani Pashtuns have also been arrested um, and have also been detained. Now, I'd like to emphasize that I'm not saying, and I don't think that this is simply a question of law enforcement agencies acting you know, in a in a wrong way or acting as a few bunch of bad apples. Because, of course, we know, um, and the works of uh, scholars like Hassan Abbas, who have uh, focused on the police within Pakistan, as well as uh, Zoha Wasim, who's worked on Karachi and policing in Karachi, we know that the police do not have a good reputation within Pakistan. Many of the reasons for this are also rooted in colonial legacies of British policing that shaped the subcontinent. Men, much of this is also shaped by the fact that in the case of Pakistan, certainly I can say this, that the police have been chronically underfunded. So in many cases in ordinary life, in day-to-day -day life, racialized groups, uh, the poor, are often subject to forms of profiling for the simple reason that law enforcement agencies might want to make some extra money. Um, you know, there is this economic rationale behind the aggressions of law enforcement agencies. But that's not what's happening at this current moment in time. Um, what's happening in this current moment in time is a lot more than corruption. There's been reported on the ground that have said that, you know, where Afghans who've been living in Karachi have said, you know, normally if the police harass us, we pay them off with a bribe, a large bribe. But now in these cases, this is not even working. So the 
issue is not clearly just off a few bad apples um, or off an economic system um, and a need to make an extra buck. Somewhere along the line, and I think that this has been a purposeful misdirection and a purposeful strategy of creating confusion by the government, uh, where they have not issued and they did not issue in a timely way circulars to say what their position was or to say that actually don't deport POR cardholders, these are folks who are considered to be registered refugees, or don't deport ACC cardholders, these are others who are re registered by the International Organization of Migration. And I think that this strategy was done purposefully by the government where directives and clear indication of who is meant to be targeted and who's not meant to be targeted was done as a way to create um, this disorder because they know that if they create this disorder they can they can unleash the law enforcement agencies to act with impunity as they will and as they wish and that is effectively what has taken place uh, the law enforcement agencies appear to have been given a free hand to be able to do what they like this, I think, is a is a crucial kind of um, setting of the scene of what's happening in the current moment. Uh, yes, I also wanted to ask, would you say that this deportation order is sudden or is it something that the country has been slowly building towards? In a simple way, um, to your, the answer to your question is yes, this is something that the government has been working towards. Or what you could say is that it's no surprise to those of us who have been working on Afghans in Pakistan uh, for a number of years. The reason I would say this is that, you know, cases of large scale harassment and deportation of Afghans have been ongoing, particularly since the mid 2000s, particularly uh, more intensified after 2010. And they have been well documented in my own work, but also in works of other journalists, other scholars, as well as um, various Human Rights Watch uh, reports as well. Um, I would also say that the entire kind of premise of Afghans being in Pakistan has always been laced with uh, precarity and insecurity from the start meaning there were never the conditions from the beginning that were created with the intention to welcome Afghans into the country as um, folks who could possibly become legally integrated within the state. And, you know, I want to consider this um, in regards to the context that when we're speaking about Afghan migration into Pakistan, most of this started in the late 1970s, early 1980s, Afghans were given, um, you know, on first encounter refugee recognition status in the spirit of the United Nations 1951 Convention regarding refugees and the 1967 Protocol. Pakistan is, of course, not a signatory to the uh, Convention and to the Protocol. But in the 1981 Handbook of Refugee Management that was issued by the government of Pakistan, it said that it would act in its spirit and the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees was always active in the country since 1979. So Afans in the 1980s were given rights as refugees or recognized as refugees. But at the same time, this hospitality and this welcome was always limited. There was never a pathway to legal integration. The idea was that refugees would return. So Afans were welcome, but always kept at a legal distance and were always meant to be not fully included within the state. And this is no surprise given that, you know, Pakistan doesn't have 
um, a refugee law. It doesn't have a national refugee law or processes of asylum. We're still operating on the colonial era 1947 foreigners law. And, you know, the 1951 Citizenship Act in Pakistan has made some pathways for non-citizens to become citizens, but the concept of asylum and refuge hasn't been fully addressed. So there's a longer lived experiences of Afghans in Pakistan where they are welcomed, but to be kept at a distance in the legal sense. They're welcome as they are useful for a geopolitical goal, which is always something that suits an establishment that is dominated by the military, but there is a legal distance that needs to be kept. Similarly, in the 1990s, Afghans are welcome because Pakistan, as has been discussed by a number of scholars and a number of works and has been well documented now, wanted to have influence in Afghanistan vis-a-vis -vis the support of the Afghan Taliban that emerged in the 1990s. But the violence really, really takes that shift after, you know, the 2000s, 2001, when the US and its allies launched the war on terror invading Afghanistan through a military occupation in a quest to de defeat the Taliban, who, as we know, were never defeated. And Pakistan was a part of that struggle. It joined the US as a key ally and a key base. And it's at this point that any new Afghans coming into Pakistan would not be considered refugees. So the legal language changes. Afghans after 2001, and it really gets implemented much forcefully in 2005, are no longer considered to be refugees, but are considered to be illegal migrants by the government. I'm using the government language here. So the focus in the in the 2000s and 2010s becomes this idea of Afghan refugee repatriation. It's the order of the day for Pakistan, international humanitarian agencies, the US, its allies, as well as the newly installed Afghan government under Hamid Karzai and then later Ashraf Ghani. Why? Because of course the US and the allies want to say Afghanistan is safe, um, the Taliban have been defeated, which of course they hadn't been. And the, you know, the European countries are also engaged in their own processes of anti-migration um, policies, particularly against the poor, particularly against black and brown migrants. All of this is a longer way of basically explaining how the welcome of Afghans changes within the country as a consequence of geopolitics from the 1970s, 1980s to the 2000s. And also to say, simultaneously, the geopolitical context shifts, but also at the same time, there was never that legal intent and legal framework that was able to be provided to the vast majority of Afghans within the country to gain some pathways to legal integration. And this was never really propelled and put forward either by international humanitarian aid agencies and the refugee regime always the focus was really primarily on repatriation. What we see happening is we have the geopolitical context and the legal context that create the conditions in which violence is able to take place um, in the 2000s, 2010s in particular. And throughout the 2000s and 2010s, as I mentioned, cases of violence against Afghans in Pakistan, particularly from low-income areas, but also sometimes and, and oftentimes also middle-class, lower-middle-class folks as well, find themselves subject to various forms of racialization, various forms of harassment in much more intense ways. And this is when you see much larger attempts at um, harassment or deportation taking place too, um, which um, allow the current moment to take place. 
So I would say that what's happened throughout these processes in the 2000s, 2000s and 10s, the violence that unfolded as a consequence of this precarious legal status and as a consequence of geopolitics and being emboldened by all of these other actors has allowed the government today in 2023 to have the absolute uh, confidence that their absurd and brazen cause to deport 1.7 million Afghans would be okay and they may possibly get away with it. And many of the refugees that you interviewed for your book had to push for basic rights and resources upon arrival in Pakistan, including access to water. Can you tell us how these refugees navigated these difficulties? Yeah, I think in many cases, in the uh, folks who I was working with in my book, which was primarily centering on low-income housing areas, informal housing areas on the outskirts of the cities of that I was working in Bishawar and Karachi, this rural to urban interface. Many times, uh, people faced lots of problems with access to basic forms of infrastructure, water, sewage, basic sanitation, gas, electricity, and the like. The people that I was working with were not living in refugee camps or refugee tented villages, as they're known. They were living in these informal housing areas, often side by side with Pakistanis of similar class standings. You know, in terms of being able to access goods and to being able to access rights, most people were not eligible for, you know, or were not given rights to water, rights to housing and the like. And this was also true of many Pakistani citizens as well. So one of the ways in which people used to circumvent this as much as they possibly could was to engage in various forms of community organizing, trying to get access to water by coming up with a deal with a middleman or trying to do surveys of an entire neighborhood to determine how many people there were so that they could determine how much water they were so that they could make a deal with somebody, a private actor or entrepreneur um, who was able to supply the particular area with water. Something that you've also touched on and spoken about is how Afghan refugees ended up creating their own sense of place and home. Can you explain also how they shaped the areas that they lived in in Pakistan? Yeah, in many cases, you know, they they built entire neighborhoods, uh, entire areas of trade or people have transformed kind of how agriculture is done, particularly in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and areas like Jarsada and Noshera. Um by introducing new kind of like techniques of farming or understanding the land a little bit better. So there have been these kind of transformative impacts in in that sense. Um, Also, much of what I try to document um, is the instances and the cases where we talk about um, urban development in major cities, the building of suburban housing areas, the buildings of roads. Much of this was done by a a labor force of Afghan refugees and Afghan migrants who uh, were the main sources of many of these kind of big projects that are taken and understood to be the success stories of urban development within, say, Peshawar, or even in some spaces in neighborhoods within Karachi, uh, agricultural transformations within Punjab and the like. A very simple example that I can think of off the top of my head is a neighborhood in Peshawar called Hayatabad, which is kind of understood as a 
urban planning success story within Pakistan and within Peshawar um, because it's kind of quite, you know, nice, well-planned suburban housing areas and much of those urban housing areas. Uh, and the first phases, certainly, of Hayatabad were built uh, by Afghan refugees who lived directly opposite, uh, you know, a couple of kilometers walk away in a major refugee camp. Uh, that would actually become the refugee camp that uh, Angelina Jolie and Stephen, you know, McCurry would kind of take these famous photographs of these refugees from from those areas. So I think that was the story that I was trying to tell, um, is that uh, the transformations of Pakistan are done in many ways through the exploitation of a cheap and racialized labor workforce. Um, but this doesn't mean, for example, that solidarities of people and of communities, particularly of shared class standings, don't take place because they do. And throughout the stories that I'm telling is that whilst you also have these massive structural inequalities um, and you also have various forms of discrimination, you also have people working side by side with each other of a shared class status of a shared working class status who are working together in face of various forms of violence and structural discrimination as a means to improve their lives. And speaking of that, how did the experience of Afghan refugees in cities like Karachi differ from those living in areas like Peshawar? So I worked in both of these areas. You know, Karachi is a country almost in itself. How many million people are there? We don't know. And it's a very multicultural city that's been affected by capitalism in a different way. It's a port city, um, you know, 23 million people, 30 million people, one of the largest mega cities alongside Mumbai and Dhaka, um, where various ethnicities um, are a part of it. Um, and capitalism means that, you know, uh, there is greater and varied economic development within the country. It's a much more of a metropolitan capital. Um, and it used to be, of course, the former political capital of Pakistan and, and it still remains the economic hub of, of the country. And Peshawar is a different city in the sense it's much smaller of its population from 5 million people or so in the moment. It's a Pashtun majority city. Vast majority of Peshawar's residents are Pashto speaking, um, and the vast majority of Peshawar's Afghans are also Pashto speaking, although there were also many Farsi speaking uh, Afghans also in Peshawar. Garaji, the Afghan makeup, is much more multi ethnic. You have many more Uzbeks, Tajiks, Turkmens, Hazaras, as well as Pashtun Afghans living within the city. So the makeup of the different groups of people that I was working with also varied across these two different uh, urban spaces and the economic structures of the city also meant that some of the lived experiences of the Afghans within these spaces were different. And what was also interesting is that a lot of the precarities over land was quite different in some of the cases in which I was working. Let me explain that a little bit, because a lot of what I was working in the cases of Garaji and of Peshawar were concerned with low income area areas, informal housing areas, the Kachiabadi, and how people access resources, goods, and the like, and sometimes even, you know, how they built their homes. In Garaji, what I would often find is that um, the chances of uh, being subject to various forms of eviction would always be a little bit higher than they would be in Peshawar. Um, and that was because the contests over land were much more pronounced, where um, the contests over land were taking place oftentimes on private land uh, and various landholders trying to claim the land as their own by settling 
migrant groups, refugees and citizens onto the land to lay claims to it, which often led to various uh, lived insecurities. And Peshawar, as we know, um, <clears throat> is a city that is very close to Afghanistan. It's a border city in many ways. Um, and has often been governed through prisons of geopolitics. It's governed almost as a frontier city. What this basically means is that oftentimes when Afghans were settling to live in informal housing areas um, on the rural to urban interface in Peshawar, they were not settling on quote unquote contested land. They weren't settling on contested land uh, that was being battled over by two different land lords or those who were trying to claim the land as their own. Often they settled on the rural to urban interface on land that was being rented out by uh, a Pakistani small landholder, for example. So the land tenure and the land security was a bit more secure in that the evictions that they faced were not the same as they would be facing in the context of Karachi. And I found that a really interesting way of how we think about cities within Pakistan from Peshawar to uh, Karachi and the different politics that shape and frame and govern it and thereby also govern the lives of the poor in terms of land security and land insecurity. The question that you may also be thinking of is, you know, does it mean that, uh, you know, where are Afghans at home in Peshawar because Peshawar is a Pashto majority speaking uh, city is what many people often tend to assume. And, you know, one in five residents of Peshawar are Afghan and often Pashto speaking. But, you know, ultimately, when it comes down to these moments of geopolitics and legality and the state clamping down on Afghan refugees, legality um, and the geopolitics of it are much more powerful than kind of like a shared cultural and ethnic sense of belonging. It's a real misconception, I think, that people have that, you know, everything is fine in Peshawar for Afghans um, and, you know, they're at home and nobody harasses them. I did many, many instances and many cases that I was documenting for my work and for um, other uh, other endeavours where the violence that many Afghans faced um, including if they were Pashto speakers in Peshawar, was particularly pronounced. Um, and it's not that it was absent or not taking place there as well. And that's also because, of course, you know, the law enforcement agencies also across the board are not always acting uh, with the interests best of the people within the country, as we've mentioned, underfunding um, resources uh, and bigger structural factors mean that, you know, uh, um, the police may be targeting and do target the poor and racialized groups and in Afghan, uh, for Afghans in Peshawar, they were all they were still considered to be non-Pakistanis, right? And that still did matter in their day-to-day -day lives. Thank you for that, Sana. And finally, I also wanted to ask for our readers whether you can recommend any books, movies, or podcasts, apart from your book, of course, mm -hmm. to those who want to learn more about Afghan refugee presence in Pakistan. Yes, there's there's brilliant works and scholarship that's kind of being done and taking place. Um, the first person I'd probably recommend who has looked at Afghans in Afghanistan as well as in Pakistan and who provides really helpful framings of how we understand how Afghans are racialized within uh, not just uh, Afghanistan uh, and not just by the British or by the Americans, but also generally by South Asians too, as I'd read the work of Anila Dolitsai. She's done some brilliant scholarship um, on uh, Afghans 
across the region. There is also the brilliant work of Paniz Musawi Natanzi, who looks at Afghan artists across South Asia. Uh, there's also great work that's been done by feminist writers in Pakistan. Sabagul Khatak has written on women, uh, Afghan women. Uh, Saadia Tour has written really well about the constructions of Afghan women within the Western mediascapes. Um, in terms of um, refugees, I would also encourage reading the work of Zehra Hashmi, who has looked at how ID cards are being used and rolled out by the government uh, of Pakistan and NADRA, the National Alien and Database Registration Authority. And in the processes of rolling out these ID cards, they're often kind of like excluding Pakistani citizens um, through these processes. So those are some of the four people I can immediately think of off of the top of my head that I would really recommend. Um, and I'd also perhaps say that the work of Shahram uh, Khosravi, who has worked on... Um, you know, migration in the um, in Europe of Afghans and of Iranians. But he also wrote a really brilliant text in 2010 called, quote, illegal, end quote, traveler, illegal traveler. And it's an auto-ethnography of borders as an Iranian who moves from Iran uh, into Pakistan, actually, and then to Europe. But through his small but short but brilliant auto-ethnography, we also hear about the Afghan stories um, in Pakistan, uh, as well. So these are just some of the people I would perhaps recommend. Thank you so much, Sana, for taking the time to chat to us and for giving us this overview of um, Afghan migrant presence in Pakistan since the 1970s. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you want to help us bring you more updates and stories, you can sign up for membership at www.himalmag.com membership. We've got a range of membership plans for you to choose from. You'll get access to our archival newsletter specially curated for you and even Himal's iconic right-side-up map with its startling new perspective on South Asia. And if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of South Asia Sphere, head to the link in our notes to sign up for our newsletter which will bring you the updates right to your mailboxes every fortnight. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever it is that you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback for the current format of South Asia Sphere, or just want to talk about how we can make it more accessible for you, don't forget to head to the link in our episode notes. We'd love to hear from you. And that's it for today and for this episode. See you next time.